0: We're feeling pretty good tonight. We'll see how that works out. All right, let's pray. What's that? Oh, well, I'll be all right. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Lord, for a great song service. Lord, thank you for a great bunch of people to worship you with. And Lord, thank you for the church house you gave us to be in. Thank you that it's warm, the bills are paid, the toilet's flush, and the lights are on. So, Father, we're grateful. And it uh, could be worse. We know there's probably people around the world today that are meeting in secret. And Father, we don't have to. So again, thank you for your goodness. And Lord, might we be mindful of it. Lord, teach us from our word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, want you to uh, look at First uh, Timothy 1, verse 10. We'll pick up a couple of verses here. Uh, the last part of that verse says, and if there be anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. We went uh, about almost three uh, lessons on that thing on the importance of doctrine. And then it's tied right into verse 11, which says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And we made the connection between sound doctrine and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we said this, when you mix sound doctrine with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, what it does is it helps you live right. And we showed you real practically through Titus chapter 2, verses I think it was 4 all the way to 12 or 13 like that. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it talks about all the age groups, the aged men. talks about the aged women. Look at that real quick just for a second. I want to make a comment and then move uh, right away from it. Uh, Titus chapter 2. But uh, when you mix sound doctrine with the glorious gospel, and you see they're connected right there with 10 and 11. They're connected. Uh, Titus, right after first and 2 Timothy there. So close together, I just blew right by it. Now you see here in verse 1, it says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. i not going to preach everything here, but I want you to see, first of all, in verse 2, he gives you the category of what? Aged men. You see that? So that's the old men, and Paul's got something to say to the old men. And just remember this, so I'd encourage you that you're never too old to learn. Amen? Uh, you're never done learning until you get in the box. <laughs> Amen? You got the aged men, and he uh, lists a number of things there. One, two, three, four, looks like about five things that he gives the aged men. Now go verse 3, and he says, the aged women likewise. So you pick up those five, right? And you add to it. And then uh, behaviors come with holiness. There are six, not false accusers. there's seven, not given to much wine. There's eight, teachers of good things. There's nine, okay? Now look at here, number four, uh, that they may teach the young women to be sober, love their husbands, love their children. There's three, to be discreet, four, chase, five, keepers at home, six, good, seven, obedient to their own husbands, uh, eight, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, what I want to just say real quick and move on is uh, some preachers will preach that a woman has to stay home. You see that? And listen, if you have the ability and you're married and you could stay home, praise the Lord and run the bases. You might get a little bit stir-crazy every once in a while, Uh, but I just was always interested why we're so unbalanced as Bible believers sometimes. And you say, what do you mean? There's, there's nine things given to that young woman, and they don't touch but the one. You see what I mean? Yeah. The same group will go to Timothy. Where does it talk about uh, modest apparel? Is that Timothy? Yeah. Um, still a little bit of a fog right here tonight, but I'm sure one of y'all Bible scholars will find that for me. And what they'll do is they'll jump on that thing about modest apparel, and they'll create a dress code for it. What's that? All right, look at 1 Timothy 2.9. Look, I'm not telling a woman to not be modest. You understand that. I'm not telling a woman to not stay home, but what you need to be is balanced in your Christianity. Uh, Timothy what? 1 Timothy 2.9? Thank you. And if you're not careful, you'll be a reactionist. And you don't want to be a reactionist in your theology. You don't want to do something just because somebody does something you don't like. Two nine. All right, the Bible says, in like manner also. Now, we're talking about sound doctrine. When you go, when you listen and you study sound doctrine, it will cause you to live right. None of this Leonard Skinner, I'm a free bird, I can do whatever I want stuff. Sound doctrine will cause you to live right. And you know what you need to do? You need to live right. And that's why you need sound doctrine. So he says, in like manner also... That women adorn themselves in modest apparel, uh, number one, right? Then he talks about shamefacedness, number two, and sobriety, number three. uh, Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. There are seven or eight of those things. But what you become of women professing a good work, so forth and so on, and then let the women learn in silence with all subjection, and then the command not to teach over. you got ten things there. I'm not coming down on the women. I'm just going to show you something and move on. I'm not sure why our crowd likes to take one thing and, and just all about modesty and run away with it. I'm all for modesty. Amen. I think a woman ought to dress modest. But a man should dress modest too. I mean. So why don't they hit the other nine? When was the last time you heard a good message on shamefacedness? But you get any given Sunday, you can pick up any channel on, you know, DopeTube or YouTube or social media, and they'll preach against what a woman's wearing. I struggle with that thing right there. You know why I struggle with it? Because I think it usually determines that a man's got a dirty heart when he's hung up in a woman's closet. I want you to see that not as as an alibi to sin, but to see that you need to be balanced in your approach to the Bible. And you need to understand that. All right, back to 1 Timothy. There's almost a dozen things there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's almost a dozen things in Titus chapter 2. And for whatever reason, the Bible-believing brethren love to sit there and park out and tell every woman and tell your wife and tell your daughter how they need to dress. I struggle with that thing. If the Holy Ghost can't tell you, you think a preacher's going to be able to get through your head and heart? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Right? All right, so... uh, we were talking about sound doctrine. We're also talking uh, about how the Lord is the one in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, that enables a man to be put into the ministry. So here's where we grab the next gear and go. It's the Lord who enabled Paul. Uh, and Paul's thankful for three things right there. And But we left off on this thought. There's a difference between being put into the ministry. Uh, there's a difference between serving the Lord Or being put into the ministry. There's two different things. There's two different things. So, you're now, I had you just flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to grab Acts chapter 1. I want to show you just a couple things here. There is a difference between serving the Lord and being put into the ministry. And we're not, um, we don't don't hammer hard on uh, people having ministry, and this is my ministry, and this is how I minister. We believe that if you're right with God, you'll just serve the Lord. Amen? Amen? And in due time, you will find a way, you will find an avenue to serve the Lord in the way that you're able, in the capacity that God gave you. And some places and some churches are big on hierarchy, and some churches are big on you got to have the plant watering ministry, and you've got to have the nursery ministry, and you got to have the parking lot ministry, and you've got to have the grass cutting ministry, and you've got to have the... You know, the toilet ministry and then the, the the sweeping. Okay, you know, okay, whatever works to get it done, right? Uh, we're just country folk. We're just a handful of people here. So as the Lord deals with your heart and grows you in the Lord, we trust that you'll find an avenue to be able to serve the Lord. But there's a difference between serving the Lord and the Lord enabling a man to be put into the ministry. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Bible says, but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, under the uttermost part of the earth. So every Christian, I don't care who you are, uh, you're called to witness. And there, there's your marching orders right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Every Christian, breathing air right now, you are called to witness. You're called to witness for Jesus Christ. It might be true that you're scared to do it. It might be true that you struggle with doing it. And it might be true that you don't like to do it sometimes. But every Christian is called to witness. Now, know that, look at Acts chapter 8. I'll give you another one. There's a difference. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 1. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all, what, scattered abroad, You know, I've seen even in this local church when the Lord kicks things around and things start to get scattered and splattered, as they'd say, God's doing something. And usually fruit comes out of that mess. (laughs) That's not what we're gaining at here. But it says, And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Look at verse 4. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So not as, not only is every Christian called to witness, but every Christian is called to preach. You see that? Every Christian, your marching orders is a witness for Jesus Christ and to preach for Jesus Christ. Now look, not everyone's called to be a pastor, but you're all called to preach. When you preach, you take that word and you separate it down. Preach, reach, each. You see that? That's you taking time one-on-one, telling the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody else. You're all called to witness. You're all called to preach. So all Christians are called to witness. All Christians are called to preach. But not all Christians are put into the ministry. Uh, Not all of them are called. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. I'll show you this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. This is a strange verse to me. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 11, talking about the ministry. Paul says here, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. So Paul, he was in the ministry, wasn't he? He was a preacher, he was an apostle, he was a teacher of the Gentiles. Of course, we know that the apostles are done away with. There's no more apostles. And you see these clowns on TV call themselves their apostles or just clowns. That's all they are. They're liars is what they are. And uh, but that's Second uh, Timothy one eleven. So, in in retrospect of Second Timothy one eleven, Paul says, "I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles. Who cares what any man thinks about me? Why, Lord put me into the ministry. I'm not being disrespectful when I say this, but who cares what my preacher Paul Heaton thinks about me?" Who cares what my mentor, uh, David Peacock, thinks about me? That's not, to, that's not being a cruel, unusual jerk. That's if God puts me in the ministry, what does it matter what men think about me? You see what I'm saying? The thing that matters is what does God think about me? I don't say that because I don't go to them for counsel. Don't get that wrong. But if I'm appointed a preacher and a teacher, which I am, I'm a pastor and a teacher. That's what God uh, put me in the ministry to do. To be called in the ministry, I have to worry about what God expects me to do. And I should be concerned with God counting me faithful. Don't get the wrong idea again. I'm not being a rebel and a renegade and an anarchist here. It's not that I don't esteem these men highly for their work's sake. My preacher that I was under for 18 years has been in the ministry, what, 47 years? 45, 46. I don't know. Long time. Good night. As long as I've been alive. That's a long time. But when it comes to God enabling me and putting me into the ministry, I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I had a conversation with an individual, and they said this uh, back when the Lord called me to, to be a pastor. I said, well, the Lord didn't call you to be a pastor. I said, I didn't get that email. You better ask the Lord to forward that to me. You see what he's doing? You're trying to tell me what God wanted me to do for my life. What would you do? I told him to forward the email. <laughs> what happened? There was no email to be forwarded. God calls you into the ministry. You don't need man's approval. All right, and uh, you'll notice that if the Lord enables you, and, uh, and if you're a young man, this is the part of the process of God's enabling, that's getting under the preaching, that's studying the Word as it's taught, and that's trying to live clean and pure and fight your flesh, and that's doing the best you can. It's all part of the enabling process. All right, then don't ever cease, uh, go back to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Now, if God enables you and God puts you into the ministry, there's a reason I'm preaching this. First of all, because we're in the book of 1 Timothy. Number two, I might just be dealing with a young man who's going to be in the ministry one of these days. And if God calls you into the ministry and then He puts you into the ministry and then He enables you to be a minister for Him, just like Paul in verse 12, don't ever cease to be thankful. It's not a a party line, man. You ought to be thankful. God puts you in the ministry. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that economy faithful, putting me into the ministry. And when Paul tells you he thanks God, first of all, he tells you what he used to be. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious Now, if you want to look this thing up, you can look at Acts chapter 26. Paul goes into a little bit of detail in Acts chapter 26 and verses 10 to 12, and that will tell you what Paul used to be. He says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. I don't know how many people you know in this community, but just take the the most vile, wicked, blaspheming individual in Iosco County that you know, and just think what could happen in this community if God could save them. Sometimes, yeah, I've run across rough characters over the years, and I've often thought, man, if God could get a hold of them, can you believe the people they could reach? Sometimes I feel kind of uh, stunted in my reach. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a box. Like uh, back in my ice cream days, man, I... I couldn't go in anywhere. I knew people. They knew me, and I couldn't get out of Walmart without an hour-long conversation with two or three people, and I hated even going into the store because in so many people's homes. But as the years pass by, and the years pass by, and I'm in the woods, and I'm studying the book, and reading the book, and being a preacher, the less and less people I come into contact with. And some of you people come into contact with a lot of people on a daily basis, but just think of some of those wretched individuals. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was injurious. (laughs) Oh, Paul, he'd cut your throat in a heartbeat. If he didn't like you, throw you in jail. Now, here you're going to see the long-suffering of God to a sinner. Look at verse 13. Paul says, but I obtained mercy. and that a blessing? Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So God gave Paul mercy. And there are a lot of people today that don't do these things ignorantly. Amen. They know it's wrong. They blaspheme, and they know it's wrong. They persecute others, and they know it's wrong. Uh, They're injurious. They're fighters. They're trying to stop you from doing something for God. They know it's wrong. You'll notice it says at the end of verse 13, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, here's something you need to get a hold of no matter what age you are. The younger, the better. But here it is. Higher education always leads to unbelief in the Bible. I'll say it again. Higher education always leads to unbelief in the Bible. And the higher educated you are, listen, I'm not talking about every single person. We're not talking about the exception that proves the rule, right? But the higher educated you are, the less likely you are to ever believe that this Bible is true. Education has one sole purpose, and that is to excuse and accept sin. The more educated you get, it's designed to get you to accept more sin. Amen. Now look. Why don't you sit there and point out the exceptions. As a rule of thumb, the more educated you get, the less likely you are ever to believe this book is true. And I'm not kicking against school. I'm not kicking against education. I'm in school right now. Matter of fact, I have over 12 years of postgraduate education. You say you must be pretty stupid. Well, you could start there too, amen? I just believe some classes are worth repeating. I just don't lead with that card, hi, how you doing? I'm a pastor and I'm educated. That it just shows how uneducated you really are. But you need to learn. But when it comes to higher education, that stuff is designed to talk you out of your faith. It's designed to talk you out of the book. And I don't care who your professor is, and you get in these universities and that, you will find, if you find any that are Christians, be excited. But if you find any that are Christians that are Bible believers, you go ahead and roll over in your grave because you'll be dead. All right? Now, look, I think you need to keep repeating some classes. The problem with some Christians, they think once they pass the class, they never need to take it again. Well, some of you that are, have more sense than that, in your job, you repeat classes every year, don't you? It's called continuing education. And whether you like them or not, you still do them. And that's what keeps you sharp. See, you've got to remember, Christian, listen, as long as you stay in the student's desk, God can teach you. But once you think you got a handle on it, and once you think you're the teacher, the lights go out. And you're done learning the book. All right. Now, you got to remember it's the Christian scholars that have been changing the Bible. I'll say it again. It's the Christian scholars. It's the Christian higher educated class that have been changing the King James Bible, not the common preacher. The common preacher hasn't been doing it. But Paul said in, uh, I look at verse 14, verse uh, 14, uh, Paul said in verse 13 he was a blasphemer, by the way, so are you. Paul said he was a persecutor, so are you. He said he was injurious, so are you. If someone would have come up to you before you were saved and tried to tell you about going to hell, believing on Jesus Christ, you'd probably laugh at him. You'd probably mock him. And some of you might even pick to fight with him. But look at fourteen. The Bible says, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. So here's a question when was the grace exceeding abundant? When Paul was at his worst. You see that? His grace was not when you were at your best. His grace when Paul was a, a blasphemer. See, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet see that? While we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. When Paul was a persecutor, when he was a blasphemer, when he injurious the grace of God was exceeding abundant when you and I were at our worst. And that's why anybody can be saved. Amen. That's why you should tell people about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how bad they are, the worse they are, the more you can relate. You say, well, I'm scared. Why? You must think you're too good for them. Are you a sinner? If you can get someone to believe that they're a sinner, you can probably help them get saved. But it's the self-righteous individual that's caught up with Adam and Eve's fig leaves. They're the ones who are so self-righteous you've got to dent that thing a little bit. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord is exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So you see that grace is involved. And next you see the faith that's involved in grace. He says, and then love, which is in Christ Jesus. So the grace of God is way beyond our sinful measure, isn't it? Way beyond. And the grace of God can reach to the lowest person. Paul's going to tell you who he thought the lowest person was here. Look at verse 15. He said, this is a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. That's a great verse, isn't it? Now notice this saying in verse 15. He says, uh, this is a faithful saying. You know what that means? It's a true saying. And Paul says this three other times besides where we're at. He says it three other times. He says it, of course, here in First 1 Timothy 1.15. If I'd had the board, I'd write it on there, but don't worry about it now. He says it uh, in 1 Timothy 4.9. Let's look at that, 1 Timothy 4.9. I'm going to give you all uh, four places where he says it. 1 Timothy 4.9 is the second place he says it. And uh, 1 Timothy 4.9, the Bible says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. That's a good verse for your Calvinist friend, especially of those who believe. So the true saying is this, you're going to suffer with God. That's the true saying. You're going to suffer. You start doing right. You start living right. You start trying to do what God wants you to do. You get on track. You get refocused. You're finally in a place, and you're like, man, this is really good. Guess what? You suffer. What is it? God's proven you. All them that live godly will suffer persecution. Amen. You live in godly. Well, you're going to get it in the neck a little bit, aren't you? Amen. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> All right. Thirdly, look at Second Timothy two eleven. Second Timothy two eleven. Chasing down this phrase real quick. Uh, it's a faithful saying. A faithful saying. Second Timothy two eleven. And it says, "It is a faithful saying. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him." Paul says this is a true saying. If you're dead in this world, you're going to be with God, so don't worry about it. Amen. <laughs> That's good thinking, ain't it? You kick on off out of here. See you later. I'll see you up there, they say or in the air. And then he says it one more time. Look at Titus chapter three, verse eight. Titus three, eight. It's a faithful saying. Faithful saying. Uh, Paul saying, look, this is a true saying. You ought to take, a, take notice of these phrases in your Bible. They make for great Bible study, and they help learn you the Bible. Titus 3, 8, the Bible said, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. He's telling Titus, look, you need to preach this stuff. You need to affirm it. You need to uphold it. You need to teach it. You need to study it. You need to preach it. That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain what? Good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So Paul says this is a true saying. And the true saying is that you've got to maintain good works if you're saved. Not to be saved, but if you are saved, you ought to maintain good works. Let me ask you this question. And this is is our faithful crowd, okay? But why do you suppose most Christians don't serve the Lord? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think. I'll tell you they don't serve the Lord because I don't think they read the Bible. Because I think if your average Christian would just read the Bible, the Bible would speak to their heart and would deal with them. But I just think the average Christian doesn't read the Bible. You read that verse right there, you cannot get around the fact that you and I need to maintain good works. You say, what is it? Well, you need to ask the Lord what that should be. And see, that all comes back to your fellowship with Jesus Christ, your personal relationship with Him, Lord. Uh, what did what did uh, uh, Saul say? What wilt thou have me to do? That was uh, that's when he got converted. And then I showed you in the scriptures how, just chapters later, he said, "Lord, what do you want to do with me?" And as you grow in grace, uh, and as you start going through some things and you start to suffer a little bit as a Christian, you know what you wake up and say, "Okay, Lord, <laughs> what do you want to do with me today?" <laughs> because you know it's not you doing it; He's doing it through you. you're like, Lord, if we're going for a bumpy ride, I know you'll be with me. So whatever it is you want to do with me today, I'm buckled in, and I'm prayed up, so let's get after it. And Paul says a faithful saying that if you're saved, you ought to maintain good works. Isn't that a blessing? I don't know how you can miss that and read your Bible. It's a faithful saying. Look back to 1 Timothy 1.15. So that phrase happens four times, and it's a great thing to run out, and there's a lot of... There's a lot of practical sound doctrine there, but there's a lot of devotional truth in it as well. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, you notice the purpose of Christ coming into the world was to do what? Save sinners. That's it. He didn't didn't come in here to do anything but save a bunch of sinners. And uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 9 for a second. Now, you remember, uh, while you're turning over to Matthew chapter 9, remember over in John, it says he came in his own, his own received him not. But then you get over there. I can't remember where it's at. Some of you all can correct me on this. But he tells Mary, the Holy Ghost speaks to Mary and says, uh, thou shalt call his name Jesus and he shall save his people from their... You see that? That's what it is. That's why he came. You know, Marsha J. Stevens, she was a, a CCM artist turned lesbian. She wrote that song, For Those Tears I Died. He didn't die for your tears. He came into this world, he died for your sins. You see that? You guys doing all right? I hope I didn't break your heart with that. You know, that CCM crowd thinks that Marsha J. Stevens is just a wonderful role model for all Christians. She's a lesbian. She's a sex pervert. Say what you think about that? She ain't no role model for me or my family. She needs a Lord, and if she's saved, she needs to repent. Say, well, that's cruel. Well, what would you say? Come on in and have coffee? You're not supposed to even associate with them. You didn't die for your tears. I don't care how it makes you cry and how it makes you relate to sorrows in your life. I don't care if the, the, the chorus is a climactic buildup to your sorrows and all your tears and all. It's baloney. He didn't die for your tears. He died for your sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Why? Because you're a sinner. And if you're saved, now you're a saved sinner. (laughs) All right. But Matthew chapter 9, notice what he says in verse 13. He says, but go ye and learn. Isn't that just like the Lord? He tells a bunch of religious, puffed up, arrogant Pharisees, go ye and learn. (laughs) What that meaneth? I will have mercy, and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what Christ came. Look over Luke chapter nineteen. I'll show you another great verse in the Bible. A lot of people say the King James Bible is so difficult to understand. It's just so hard to read. It's just so hard to learn. Baloney. It's a fourth grade English level, uh, and and some of it's fifth grade. But overall, it's fourth grade. John Wesley said it's simple enough for the uh, plowboy but yet complex enough for the lawyer. <laughs> I mean, lawyers are so screwy, they can screw their socks on. <laughs> and if it's complex enough for the lawyer, that's how the Lord does that thing. <laughs> but look at uh, Luke 19.10. The Bible says, For the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Ain't that great? Ain't that the truth? Isn't that a powerful, Isn't that one of the most powerful sentences you've ever heard in your life? You ready for this? One-syllable word in every one. So, that sentence composed of one-syllable words spoken by Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus is too hard to understand. Well, you can't understand one-syllable words, pal. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know how you argue with the simplicity of that. One-syllable words. Cat, dog, mouse, tea, <laughs> spoon, fork, knife, fish. <laughs> Uh, I, that's how I think I look at that. Oh, my goodness. One syllable words. And uh, folks say the Bible's hard to understand. You know what? I, when people tell me that, you know what I always say? Who told you that? Because an earnest, truth seeking Christian would not come to that conclusion. He has to be told that. Someone told me a while back, says, Why? Well, you know, that, that the King James Bible is just too hard to understand. I said, who told you that? What would you say? I said, who told you that? I said, because I've never heard a, a person, an independent thinker, say that a day in my life. Someone has to teach you that. And he actually looked, well, come to find out. Yeah, 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 there you go. You listen to some, someone you shouldn't. All right, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So you know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, hey, I am the chief of sinners. Now, why would Paul say that he's the chief of sinners? I'll tell you why, because Paul is looking at himself in the light of this book. He's looking at himself in the light of God. And when you look at yourself in the light of this book that's in your lap right here, I'm telling you, if you have a King James Bible in your lap, that thing is the only thing that will change your life. It's not going to be a conference, it's not going to be a seminar, it's not going to be some uh, social group, it's going to be the book, and that's the only thing that will change you ever. And, but Paul's looking at himself in the light of his book, and, uh, and I believe uh, if you get this book right here, you'll see yourself like God sees you. And you know what you'll agree? You and I will agree together that Paul's wrong. You say, what do you mean? Well, who's the chief of sinners? Yeah, you are. You see that? I am. Paul's not the chief of sinners. I'm not just, dis- I'm just, dis- you know know what we're saying. When you look at that book and you look at yourself in the light of this book, uh, you'll see that Paul isn't right, that you're the chief of sinners, and I'm the chief of sinners. When you see yourself in the light of the book, you'll just see how sinful you really are. And here's the thing, you've got to watch yourself, because in this day and age that you and I live in, if you have the right mentality about yourself when it comes to the Bible, people will accuse you of being depressed. And people accuse you of being melancholy. And all, I mean, you, ever, you go to the doctor and answer these questions? My goodness. I was in a bad mood. I know you find that hard to believe. So I was in a bad mood one time, and I was almost in tears when I got done answering those questions. And you say, why? I was just a little bit off center with the Lord. And then the doctor had to come see me. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. (laughs) Oh, sure. Here, I'm wiping the tears away. What are you doing? I'm trying to have a mini revival before I go see the doctor. Well, no, really, your levels are off. That might be. I've I've never been real level, you know what I mean? But um, you answer anything anymore. Are you depressed? I'm like, only when I get your bills, you know, (laughs) then I'm depressed. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, you'll uh, you'll agree that Paul was wrong. But uh, I, want you, I want you to see this. Uh, they'll think you're depressed or they'll think you're melancholy. They'll, they'll actually think you're cuckoo. Um, but look at Isaiah chapter 6. I want to show you this. a couple places from the Bible that you see how men look at themselves according to the book and what happens when you do that. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And you know, at the end of the day, you know what psychologists and most people in this world, you know what they don't want you to be? They don't want you to be sensitive to sin. But don't you want to be sensitive to sin? Don't you want the Lord to be able to tug at your heart the moment you disobey Him and get that thing right? It'd be a terrible thing to think that you could go ahead and sin and just be so callous you could stack up sins like body bags for about a month and it never bother you. I'd be scared to death. You know, one of the greatest comforts that you should have as a Christian that you still get convicted for doing wrong. That's a blessing. I mean, when, you know, when you just lose it, you just run your fat mouth, and you just, whether it is you say something perverse or off-color or you cuss or something, do you feel bad? I hope you do. That's conviction. That's your Heavenly Father being able to get to you. You're not just so jaded. And that's why you got to be careful with stuff you take in through your eyes and stuff you take in through your ears. And listen, you work at the workplace and everyone's dropping cuss bombs and F-bombs and all that other stuff, and it vexes you. And eventually over time, you just you get callous to it, don't you? Amen. You do. And, uh, but man, you ought to be sensitive to sin. Huh? I sure hope you are. But look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Uh, That's like his garment there, not like the 6 o'clock there. But uh, verse 2, Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. Man, ain't that a creature? Six-winged creature, my goodness. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. That's, That's old English for two. You know that, right? And with 20, he did fly. So two wings are covering this creature's face, two wings covering its feet, and two wings, he's fluttering and flying there. Look at three. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now look at four. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now Isaiah sees all this, And now he's going to see himself in the light that God sees him. Look at verse 5. Then said I, Woe is me. You see that? Isaiah sees the glory of God. And listen, when you see the glory of God, you'll see the sinfulness of man. That's the right aspect, that's the right perspective. And when you see the glory of God and see Him lifted up, not only you'll see the sinfulness of man, but you know what you'll see? You'll see your own sin where otherwise you might not have been able to. So isn't it good when you you go through stages in your Christian life sometimes where you're more sensitive to sin than others, and you go through stages in your Christian life, and it depends on your yieldedness and submission to the Holy Spirit, that sin actually bothers you, and then you start getting sensitive to sin, and the closer you walk, you sang the song tonight, just a closer walk with thee, and you just keep getting closer to the Lord, and all of a sudden your sin begins to bother you. That's where you want to be. Look what Isaiah says, verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. There you go. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Notice he notices his own sin first. That's it. Now, that's a spiritual man can notice his own rotten mouth first. And I dwell in the midst. I mean, listen, other people's mouths bother me, but you know how often my mouth bothers me? I hate to say not very often. But if I'm in a restaurant with my wife, you know, you know, playing the dog or acting like I'm Joe Cool and that, and someone starts I've about gotten fistfights in restaurants, people running their cotton picking mouth. <laughs> I'm serious? Well you're a preacher and you're not supposed to be. I didn't. I said I almost did. But they were effing this and G D and that and just being terrible. So what would you do? I did what any man would do. I had three daughters, Aaron, and a wife. I was going to get up there and mop the floor with them. What did the Lord do? He didn't let me do it. Why? Because I got my hand kicked and went in jail and been a bad testimony for me. Amen? So the Lord didn't let it happen. But he sees his own unclean lips first. And you'll notice what I, when Isaiah sees himself in the light that God sees him, you know what you also see? That then after he sees his own sinfulness, then he gets a burden. You see that? Watch the next verse, verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? You see, Isaiah just said, Hey, I'm unclean. Hey, I'm undone. He just had to come to Jesus' meeting. So what happens? We gets a burden. Look at verse 8. Then said I... Here am I. Send me. See, you can't get a burden for sinners until you see yourself the way that God sees you. Did you catch that? If you don't see yourself the way God sees you, you won't get a burden for sinners. You won't get a burden for your family. You won't get a burden for your community. Some people say, Well, preacher, I don't know. I just can't seem to work up a burden for lost people going to hell, you know can't seem to work up a burden for my family. can't seem to work up a burden for people at work, you know. I just can't stand being around them. And just, they, just, they just grate me the wrong way, you know. Yeah, I know. That's because you're not looking at people the way God's looking at them. You're looking at the way that you're looking at them. Let me give you one more, Job 42. Job chapter 42. You need to learn to look at yourself in the light of this book. And given that we're creatures of flesh, we seem to dwell on ourselves, don't we? And we try to make ourselves look the best, which is a blessing, and smell the best, which is a better blessing, amen? And then all of a sudden we get to thinking we are the best, and we're really not. You know what you are? You're just an animated ball of sin. And without the blood of Jesus Christ, like we said, you'd be as good as in hell with the door shut. Job 42, now listen, that won't do much for positive thinking, but if you go through your life as a positive thinker, you'll go to hell. You're a sinner. You might be a saved sinner, but you're a sinner. Look at this, Job chapter 42, look at verse 4. Uh, Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth it. Now watch it, here it is. Verse 6, wherefore I abhor myself... And repent in dust and ashes. When Job sees himself the way God sees himself, Job repents over his sin. See that. And when you look at yourself the way God sees you, it'll be different. You'll say this: Paul was wrong. Paul is not the chiefest of sinners. Jeremy Evans is. <laughs> you say you want me to say that you are? Yeah, help yourself. <laughs> Back to First Timothy chapter one, but you know what I'm saying. First Timothy chapter one verse sixteen, the Bible says, "Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting." Now we'll uh, just grab a couple things on this and close it down for night. A lot of people have a problem with this passage, but of course there's nothing wrong with the passage at all. There's wrong with the people who got a problem with it. But since verse 15 talks about Paul being the chiefest of sinners, most people say that the cause in verse 16 is a reference to the chiefest of sinners, which it's not. I'll say it again. Since verse 15 talks about Paul being the chiefest of sinners, most commentators and scholars, they'll say that the cause in verse 16 is a reference to the chiefest of sinners, but it's not. And they'll say that uh, that's why God showed him mercy. But that ain't why God showed him mercy, You've got to realize Paul wasn't the first person in the Bible to uh, be able to partake of the long-suffering of God. If you want to find someone who's worse than Paul, just read about Manasseh, King Hezekiah's son. That guy was a murderous, idolatrous wretch. And God let him live, uh, reign for 52 years. <laughs> Produced the worst king that Israel ever had, Jude ever had there. He was worse than Paul. Well, how about this? Uh, you ever read about Ahab? Not Ahab the Arab, but Ahab the king? <laughs> I mean, he was worse than Paul. Had old Jezebel for a wife there. And every time Jezebel sneezed, worked him up like a top, man. Wicked Ahab and wicked Jezebel, they were worse than Paul. Uh, and you read about Paul, Manasseh, and Ahab. And Paul wasn't the first to experience long suffering. God dealt with lots of sinners before Paul did. So when you read over there in 1 Timothy 1 16, howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, it's not a reference to the chief of sinners. Because you look in verse 16, then it says, That in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now God's dealing with Paul, but the pattern was to be found in Paul after salvation, not before. The pattern is to be found in Paul after salvation, not before. And uh, But uh, the commentators and all your scholars that think they're smarter than God, they say that everybody was saved like Paul. Well, let me tell you what. I never went to Damascus. I never saw a bright light from heaven. Uh, I never was thrown to the ground. That's not your conversion experience. You see what I mean? A lot of people weren't saved like most, like nobody was saved like Paul was. There's there's no pattern for salvation. Everybody's saved individually. Everybody has a different testimony how the Lord saved them. Uh, Think about it. Just go back in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. Philip leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. He doesn't do it the same way Paul does it in Acts chapter 9. Well, then go ahead one chapter to 10. Cornelius. Cornelius gets saved. Doesn't get saved the same way Paul does. (laughs) You see what I mean? There's no pattern of salvation. I've seen him stand up here and pray and get saved. I've seen him sit down and pray and get saved. I've seen people get on their knees outside of a bar and trust Christ. (laughs) seen people sit down and just kind of talk to the Lord and get saved. Uh, Some have prayed and gotten saved with no emotion whatsoever. You're like, I wonder if it even took, you know. (laughs) And then some people, they start to pray and ask the Lord to save, and they start crying. And it's a deep emotion. (laughs) You know, it's all different. There's not a pattern. (laughs) Uh, So Paul is our pattern after... We get saved not before. And you can find that in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We won't take the time to look at that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Now listen, the pattern that you and I are to follow is the very sufferings of Paul. The pattern that you and I are to follow as Christians is the sufferings of Paul. And uh, Paul receives mercy as you read right in that Verse. So God can use him as an example of God's saving grace. But not only that, God shows mercy to Paul because he's going to be a demonstration of what the Christian life is going to be like and what you're going to have to go through. You think about it. If God wouldn't have given Paul mercy and grace, there's no way we'd have the pattern. Can you imagine in your frame, in your form, just going through life without the extra grace that God gave Paul? So when the Lord said, my grace is sufficient, that's an extra dispensation of grace that God gave Paul to get through the things so we could have him for a pattern. You see that? You say, well, Paul was just a super Christian. Yeah, because he had the grace of God on him. Just had something just supernatural. There's no way any man could have done any of that stuff without the touch of God, without the grace of God, and without the mercy of God upon him. And uh, God shows Paul mercy because it's going to be a demonstration of what the Christian life is going to be like and what you're going to have to go through. And it's not going to be easy. Let's look at one last passage here, and we'll close for the evening. Let's look at Paul's sufferings. look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll just touch on this, and we'll close. Many of you have covered this time and time again. We've talked about Paul's sufferings, and he was a man who suffered his entire ministry. But God chose Paul to do that so we'd have a pattern. Why? Because all those who live godly will suffer persecution. You're going to suffer. And as we just come out of the book of 2 Thessalonians, you know what we learn? You're going to suffer. (laughs) Amen. And matter of fact, as we come out of the book of 2 Thessalonians, the thing became very clear to me this time going through that book, that if I'm not suffering, I'm kind of asking the Lord why. You say, you're really a glutton? No, I'm not a glutton for punishment, but it's, it's really like, okay, I'm, I'm doing right because I, I'm, I'm getting it handed to me, right? And then there's comfort. You can't get the comfort until you get the suffering. A lot of people come to church. We'll get to this in just a second. You've got to remember, a lot of people come to church and they're, they're not suffering, but yet they want the comfort of God. You can't get the comfort of God until you get the suffering. All right, First Corinthians 4, verse 8. Paul says, now, are, now ye are full, now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. He's sarcastic with them. Paul was very sarcastic in his writings. And I would to God you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Not the way Paul did, but don't you just feel like, you know, you got the, the big sore nose or the big sore thumb. You know, there's just something wrong with you. Besides what's already wrong with you? You're just a spectacle. If you're saved, you got a little bit of a complex, don't you? You do, unless you're a liar. Look at uh, 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. i got a feel-good funny story. When I was in high school, I used to carry my Bible. For I didn't carry it all the time. I just carried a little bit, you know, when I felt spiritual. You know, I carried my Bible, and I was a football player. And, a, and I sang in the choir. That was the weirdest thing. They couldn't, couldn't reckon those two things together. Here I was, big guy, playing football and singing in the choir. Oh, they just—they didn't know whether to make fun of me or be nice to me, you know, <laughs> especially when I, especially my junior year and senior when I got bigger. But I was walking up down the hall one time, and I was carrying my Bible, and I always put it up front so they could see it, you know. And a couple of the guys on the football team said, oh, you're a sissy. You're a big sissy carrying that Bible, like, you yeah, know, whatever. And so I walked up to him, and I smiled at him. I was nervous as all get out. I says, I'm a sissy, eh? I said, yeah, you're a big sissy. You know, you carry your Bible. I picked it up. I handed it to him. I said, you carry it then. Oh, no. <laughs> nope, don't want it. I said, who's a sissy now? I use that same philosophy out on the street. There's a guy come up to me. He was drunkard and cooter brown. And uh, he was just, just right in my face. You know, I could just taste the alcohol and, He's like, you're a coward. You're a coward. You're nothing but a coward, and a few other expletives there. I said, why am I a coward? Well, you're holding that sign. You you think it's all Jesus and this and that. I said, oh, you think I'm a coward for holding the sign? I said, you hold it then. Oh no, 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 no. I don't, I don't, who's the coward? <laughs> but look at this. He said, we're a fool for Christ's sake. And sometimes in your Christian life, you just got to be a fool. You're going to be a fool one way or the other. You're going to be a fool for your job. You're going to be a fool for the Lord. You're going to be a fool for your own desires. You're going to be a fool for Jesus Christ. He said, But ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, he's telling the truth now. We both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. Look at that. You ever you get thirsty in your house every once in a while? You just get up and go to the sink, you know, a fridge or something, or at McDonald's, you get you a Diet Coke or Dr. Pepper, right? I wonder how many books of the Bible Paul wrote with excruciating thirst. Look at it. Even into this present hour, we both hunger and thirst. gonna tell you what, your stomach starts rolling. You know what you're doing? I don't know. You're microwaving some pizza rolls, I guess. Right? Or you're throwing in some popcorn. He says, and are naked. He didn't even have the right clothes to wear. And are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. I'm thankful for my little tiny shack there in Lupton. You know, I wasn't thankful for it for a number of years, but now I got like less than a year to pay it off. I'm thankful for it. You say, what is it? It's home is what it is. I always had visions of grandeur that we're going to sell it and buy this great place and maybe, you know, if you hit the lottery, maybe we would. But just kidding there. But, but anymore, I, the older I get, I'm like, it's okay. It's, it's our house. It's our home. But Paul, he had no certain dwelling place, no place to call home. I can't I can't fathom that. He say, How could he do it? God's grace. He had the grace of God. He says, In labor, working with their own hands. He wasn't a mooch. He wasn't a freeloader. Being reviled. Everywhere he went, people were reviled against him. Every town he went to, man, they ran him off, it seemed like. We bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things unto this day. I've always found that interesting at the workplace. You could be a Bible-believing Christian, love the Lord Jesus Christ, be in fellowship with him, and you have someone there with the worst vulgar mouth in the world, and they think he's kind of a neat guy, but you say something about the Lord, and you feel like what? You feel like the filth of the world. It's exactly what it is. You know what that is? That's the reproach of the cross. He says, therefore, we go and bear reproach outside the camp. All right? And are the offscarring of all things, you know what offscarring is, right? That's the scum on the bottom of the toilet there. Now look at 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. That's a little bit about the sufferings of Paul there. And we'll stop right there and pick this thing back up in Sunday school. Paul is our pattern. You get someone trying to t- tell you that Peter is your pattern or James is your pattern or Matthew is your pattern, that's trouble, that's trouble. Paul's your pattern how to live the Christian life after you get saved, after you get saved. And that's the biggest takeaway in verse 15. The pattern is after salvation. All right, why don't you stand? We'll pray and go home.